So we begin a new sermon series today, and we are going to be tracking through the biblical book of 1 Peter. We are, uh, we are building off some themes that I introduced last week for those of you who were here, but I want to sort of reintroduce that to remind us, and, and for the benefit of those who weren't here, uh, I, I'm using these graphics up here as sort of an image of what we're trying to talk about. This graphic over here is a representation of the church gathered. So we, the church, are the red dots. And when, when we gather, this is what we look like. So right now, gathered in one place, there's this uh, sort of percentage of us kind of in the corner all together, small but mighty, and that's a good thing. This here represents the rest of our time when we're not working together, when we're not gathered for worship or in our groups. We are scattered throughout the world, still God's people, still the red dots, uh, doing what we do. The Bible says that this gathered time is important. Actually, Jesus said special things happen when we gather like that. And the book of Hebrews commends us to, to don't neglect this at all. But we have to admit the rest of the time when we are at home or at work or scattered about what we do is really the bulk of our time if we spend maybe two to ten hours a week gathered doing uh, fellowship and worship with other Christians, we spend perhaps 110 hours a week as the church scattered and then you spend the rest of your time sleeping, of course. We don't count that time. Um, but we also have to confess that we spend as a church, free Christian church, that we spend a lot of energy we spend a lot of effort on that. What does our time together look like? How do we improve it? How do we change it? We actually spend our, our you know, positive energy towards that. We spend quite a bit of negative energy towards that. How is it going? And how can we do it better? And sometimes it is at the neglect of this. So what we're trying to do for this season and for this sermon series is to focus on being the church scattered. And how do we equip? And again, as God's word says, it's the role of leaders in churches to equip all of God's people for the work of ministry. So the ministry that happens there as we gather, but also the ministry that happens during the bulk of our time as we are scattered. And I don't want to create a, a false dichotomy. The hope is actually that we're using this time to equip that time so that we flow from this good thing to that good thing, and we flow back and forth uh, very freely between these, all the ways that God has called us to be his people. So we're going to leave these up as a visual reminder of what we're talking about. And we're calling this series the Everyday People of God. So every day, whether it's a day where we're gathered in church or in a group, or whether it's a day you're just at your place of work or at school or in your neighborhood, that you are the people of God equipped to be his people. So we're focusing on 1 Peter. This is a letter written from Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. He's in Rome. It's about 64, 65 AD. He's writing to the Christians that he names in these various places. And those Christians were very isolated. They were, and, and they were facing trouble because of their faith. And it was bad, and it was going from what they may not have known, it was going from bad to get a lot worse in the years to come. And so, so this letter is, we're focusing on what it means to live life in, in a world that doesn't embrace God's way or God's value or the values of Scripture. That was the world they lived in. So we're going to spend 12 weeks on this. 
So hold on. We're going to take our time and really let this saturate and marinate our thought in our lives. Uh, but today, we're just going to start with the first two verses of the letter. Just two verses, but they are loaded. Because what Peter is doing is he's addressing these folks. He says, this is who I am. I'm an apostle. I'm a messenger of Jesus. And he knew Jesus well. He walked with Jesus. He understood what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. All of who Jesus was, he experienced that. And he re- but he reminds them who they are in the world. He says, I'm an apostle, I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle, but here's who you are. And three things I want to highlight. He says, you are exiles, you are elected, and you are empowered. The reason why this is important for us, because we too, in many ways, are like exiles as Christians in a world that is very foreign to the ways of God. We too are elected by God still in the midst of that to be his people. And we too are empowered by his grace and peace. And I want to explore those three things as we look at this text. So let's pray as we begin. So Father God, this is our prayer that as we refer to this as as being the everyday people of God, that we would be your people every day, every moment to know and to embrace what you have in store for us. So in this time right now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill and empower us to be your people and understand your heart as we look at your word. So we give the time to you. We pray your blessing over it. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week, we looked at a passage of scripture from the prophet Jeremiah. It was a time when God's people, the Israelites, were in exile, quite literally. So they were a political nation. They had kings. They had boundaries. And they, the nation of Babylon came and, and exiled a, a large number of them to live in a foreign land under foreign rule. And they were scattered throughout that region. Peter, in his letter here, uses the same word. He uses the word diaspora, which was a word that's used to describe all the Jewish people who were scattered in the world from the time of the Babylonian exile. So it was a very, it was a very technical term. But he's, he's using it to refer to the Christians. He calls them the diaspora, those who are scattered about. So those images of, being, of living in a foreign country that's not your own, in a world that you don't really fit into perfectly, that you don't belong in, this is the images that are going to come to mind. But the same notion is hopefully coming to their hearts, that God has put me in this sort of foreign place. Again, now... As Christians, it's not a geographic thing or a political thing, but the reality that, uh, that we have been reborn by the power of God through what Jesus did, that we've been reborn and given new life. It's as if we have a new home. It's as if we don't belong in this world anymore. It's as if we're foreigners, even though we haven't left our home country. But the same heart of that holds true, where God's desire isn't that we just assimilate to the world around us or that we isolate away from the world around us, but that we are a blessing, that we live in this world as foreigners and as exiles, but that we live as a a blessing to the world. Also interesting to note here, I said Peter was writing from Rome. At the end of his letter, he said, I give you greetings in chapter 5. He says, I give you greetings from Babylon. So he's, he's describing, it's kind of code language for Rome, but he's, 
It's not a letter from God's city into the exile. It's a letter from exile to exile. It's just the condition of a follower of Jesus in this world. Again, not geographic or political, but a condition of our hearts. We feel this especially in our country today because America is not a Christian nation today. We are very much a post-Christian nation. If, this, if we could have described our country as a Christian nation, it was many years ago. Even in the last 50 or 60 years, in, in the time of some of our, our, our lifetimes here, there's been a steady decline away from biblical Christianity in this country. 50, 60 years ago, uh, the, the, the role of the church was very different in our country, the role of Christian belief and value. If I were to depict it with my red dots here, I would, that number of years, you know, 60 years ago, there would be more red dots and I'd place them more in the center of the diagram as opposed to many fewer and much more on the margin in the corner of the diagram, if that makes sense. Christianity at one time was mainstream. It was more public, just more popular, if that makes sense. But there's been a dramatic shift. Uh, The Bible no longer has a voice in public discourse. The church no longer has a privileged voice in the uh, debates of today. We are more and more marginalized. Now, I don't want to overstate it, We live in a country where we gather freely, where we can proclaim Christ openly. We can gather as we are right here in this place. We can gather like this with safety. I don't feel personally persecuted because of my faith. But you'd have to agree, collectively, there's more of a collective disdain for Christianity in our world today, in our country. The research bears this out. Research shows that the majority of people in our region have no intentions of ever attending church. The majority. Most people use the name Jesus Christ only as an expletive. There are some churches that are growing, which is good, and I'm grateful for the health and the vibrancy of this church, Free Christian Church, but what's happening for some churches that are doing quite well is that they're doing a good job reaching people who are already Christians who are leaving There are churches that are declining. It's sort of a reshuffling of the same deck of cards. Listen to some of these statistics. This is from Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. They wrote a book called Everyday Church. And I actually, I recommend this book if you're looking for something to read. This is Timmis and Chester, Everyday Church, or Imagine Church by Neil Hudson. And both of these, uh, both of these books, and you can take a look at these later, These are contemporaries of ours who this has been influential in our thinking about these things. But this is what Everyday Church says. It says 100 million people in the U.S. have no contact with the church. Among that group are 13 to 15 million who express some sort of commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior, but that still leaves 85 million who are unchurched and unbelieving. The number of adults who don't attend church has doubled since 1991. Let me read that again. The the number of adults who don't attend church has doubled since 1991. Over 3,500 U.S. churches close their doors every year. And attendance at the 80% of the churches that are still remaining is plateaued or declining. That's the trend right now. What this means for us, Free Christian Church, is that we can no longer 
allow ourselves to think that people in our community, in our world today, are just going to wander through the doors of our church. Particularly in our New England, sophisticated, pluralistic, educated, but individualistic culture that people are somehow looking to the church, to the Christian church, for help. People are much more likely to try a number of different spiritual pathways. Now, we would hope that one of those pathways they would explore is the church, and we see that. People come and visit. uh, They have questions about life and who is God and and what is the purpose and meaning and how do I find hope and forgiveness. And We meet those people, and they come to faith, and that's great. But for the most part, people are happy to read a self-help book. They might be more apt to try a therapy or some therapeutic method. People turn to medications, prescription medications or non-prescription self-medicating ways that people cope. But the point is this. Doing church the way we've always done it is is not going to cut it anymore. Merely just having a service on Sunday or putting on new programs or improving our programs or improving our preaching or improving our staff or better music or better bricks or fancy website. It's just not going to cut it. Now, those things are good. And we absolutely, again, I don't want to overstate it. We absolutely need to do what we do better and do it excellently. And it still is beautiful. We see people coming to faith. Uh, So we should do those things. But just having a better Christian product, so to speak, it's just not cutting it. Now, on a positive note, that in, in, we had a guest speaker a couple weeks ago. His name was Terry. He shared some research, which is true, that a, a lot because of this decline of Christianity, there's a lot there's a lot fewer people who are just nominally Christian. They just sort of name they just call themselves Christians, but they really don't have faith. You know, you fill out a survey, they check off. You know, I'm Congregational, I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic. Or, you know, they just but they don't really practice their faith or have faith. There's fewer and fewer of that. There's fewer fair-weather fans. It's, it's not cool to be Christian, so why would I check that off? Somebody might see me say that I'm a Christian. So because it's not cool, there's fewer and fewer people just kind of tagging along, and there does, that does mean that those of us who are left, there's, there's a strength in that. There's more of a purity to it, I suppose. The other thing is... Look, especially in this region, in New England, we are the least, church, by percentage of attendance at a church, we are the least churched region in the country, New England states. Great opportunity. You know, the two, it's the two shoe salesmen who go to this remote South American village, and one, one salesman says, hey, these people don't wear shoes. I'm out of here. This is awful. The other salesman said, hey, this is great. No one has shoes yet. Just a different perspective. The other good news about this is the Bible comes alive for us in a whole new way. Because it was written to people on the margins of their culture. The church, these churches and the church leaders that these letters were written to, they didn't have political power. They didn't have status. It wasn't, they they were being persecuted. They were being marginalized. And the more that, that the Christian church is pushed to the margin, the more that the Bible is easy to understand for us. So an application is, let's study 1 Peter together. 
Read it in your personal devotional time. Read through this letter over and over and see how it comes alive as we think about the world we live in. So you are exiled, but you can still be the people of God. God has good things in store for us. He has good things in store for our region, and the opportunity is great. And Peter reminds those he's writing to, he reminds them, you are actually exiles, but God is still good. The second thing he reminds them is that they are elected. They are chosen by God. We see this in verse 1 here. To God's elect, the exiles scattered throughout the provinces that he mentions. Verse 2, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. God has chosen you to be his people in all of who God is. As we understand how God has revealed himself as triune, that God is one, but God is three in one. God the Father chose you. He elected you to be part of this. God the Spirit sanctifies you. He, the Spirit alive in you, transforming you, conforming you to be more like Jesus. And God the Son, Jesus, it's all, he makes all this possible by his blood, the sprinkling of his blood, which is an image from the Old Testament, the sprinkling of blood, which is part of an understanding of substitutionary atonement, that because of sin, a life has to be given. As we understand, Jesus gave his life on the cross. His blood was poured out for our sin. He died in our place. Or thinking in terms of exile, Jesus gets the ultimate exile that our sin deserves as he has to face death on the cross, that we might get the ultimate citizenship in God's kingdom, that we, he gets cast out, that we might get brought in and be God's people and be his nation. God chose us for that. This doctrine of election is beautiful because it reminds us that God... He chose you, he didn't, and he chose you ahead of time. It was his foreknowledge, not because you were so good, not because you have it all together, or you're so capable or lovely for God to use you. Nor did he choose you because you're so pathetic, that he felt so bad for you. You're the little kid on the, you're the ninth kid, and we're picking teams, and we have four on four, and we're sorry, no place for you on the team, and you walk away sad, and one kid says, oh, fine, just, just play on our team. God didn't choose us like that. This is what Scripture says. Scripture says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. We've been chosen because he wanted to choose us. It was his love. It was his fatherly care for you. Before the world was ever made, he chose you. So we're not here part of Jesus' people because you made such a good choice to follow Jesus. You're also not part of it by chance. It comes from a good, loving Father. That's who he is. Why is it so important we remember that, that God has chosen us? The reason is this. When we live life out, scattered in the world, alone, on, and on the margins, unpopular, the feelings of fear and the feelings of inadequacy bubble up quick. One of the reasons red dots kind of turn to black dots when they're out here is because they're afraid that they're not good enough. So, sure, someday I'd love to, to be a light for Jesus, to be 
as Jesus said, light or salt in the world, but I'm just, I'm not there yet. So someday I'll proclaim him. Someday I'll live for him, but I got to really work on it before then. And the whole point that God has chosen you to be a red dot in the world of black dots, it wasn't because you got it right. It was because he chose you. So you don't have to feel inadequate. He wants you to be part of this. You don't have to be afraid because he's accepted you and loved you. Your faith isn't based on your good behavior. Now, we need to model good behavior. We need to allow his spirit to transform us. But that comes from the fact that, comes from the fact that he's given us our spirit, his spirit to change us. Now, real quick, on, on thinking... When we start thinking about how God has chosen us to be his people, we, we, oceans of ink have been spilled on this topic. And in your small groups, I'm sure you've debated, how do, you know, how do we balance that God chose me versus you know, my human decision and human responsibility? My predecessor, Jack, used to describe it like an arch that is perfectly in balance, that you have God's sovereignty and you have... Uh, our human responsibility, and they, they coexist in perfect balance. And if you push it one way or the other, it will topple over, but it, it's perfectly balanced. That's a, a decent way to explain it. I always just think we don't experience God's sovereignty in its raw and naked form. We only experience it through our human mind and our human body and human decision. So we don't see God's Sovereignty unclouded by our humanity. Any more than a fish. A fish doesn't understand water. It just lives in water. It wouldn't understand it until, unless you pull the fish out of water in which it would be clear what that was. The other thing I'd say is, in Scripture, the language about God's choosing us is always for believers. It's always for Christians looking back on what God has done for them. Never, it's never prospective. It's always retrospective. So you don't see people preaching, Jesus' followers preaching, you know, God might have chosen you, so, so you, let's, see, let's see how that works. It just it doesn't make sense. You hear preaching, like, repent and put your faith in God. And then later we realize, actually, God was at work in that when I repented, when I had faith. And you hear people tell their stories like that. Somebody who's just come to faith, they'll often say, you know, I've been searching and I've been asking questions and I've, I've found something and I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus by faith. Often later in their faith journey, they'll look back and say, God created a hunger in me while I was, that put me on this search and God brought me to a place and God was at work and you, and you realize that God, God's sovereignty was at work through all those things. That's as much time as I want to spend on that, because we could, we could just keep going. Uh, but, but it's important to remember that, particularly as I go out into the world, that God chose me to be his person. And therefore, I, I don't have to be afraid. Therefore, I don't have to feel so inadequate, because in his goodness, he chose me. So we are exiled, but we are elected to be exiled, and we are equipped or empowered to live this way of life. And we see this at the end of his introduction here, Peter says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's a fairly common greeting, grace and peace to you. I sometimes sign my emails, you know, peace, John Paul, you know, just peace out, I'll see you later. It would just, grace to you, peace to you. It's very 
common, kind language. But specifically, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The word literally means, may it be multiplied to you. May it increase to you. May it flow fully to you. And what that means is that if it's going to flow to me and grow in me, it therefore from me may flow and grow. May grace and peace flow to you so that it flows through you. You are blessed by God to be a blessing to the world around you. As Jesus said, as I have loved you, so now you may love one another. That we've been given something so precious. And grace and peace are things that are so lacking in the world around us. I had just, uh, just the other day, I was at a store and this young woman was trying to help me. I had buying a couple of gift cards and she was... She rang them up wrong, and she looked at me with this look, this oh no kind of a look. She said, I'm really sorry, I messed up. He's going to yell at me. And she was pointing at her supervisor. And, I, and, and then she thought I would become upset and annoyed with her. And I, I just looked at her and I thought, man, she was not expecting grace in any way from anybody. I said, look, it's okay. No big deal. No rush. Just you work it out. And I just smile. And her supervisor came over and didn't yell at her, but looked a little annoyed at the whole situation. And he was working it out. And the whole time I was just smiling. And I was just thinking, this is such a mundane, little, nothing of a thing. Yet, grace was not expected even in a small way. We also live in a world that lacks peace. There's so few people who live at peace with themselves. Just who am I? What has God called me to? What am I on earth here for? Why am I toiling and striving and doing all these things? We, we live in a world that lacks peace. But we've given a peace with God. That I have, I'm not in a hostile relationship with the God of the universe. That I'm at peace with him. But I also have the peace of God, which reminds me that I, I'm okay. That even in the midst of, of trials and difficulty, that I'm safe and secure. And that's a peace now. Now when I have a situation at work or a situation at home, I can respond with grace and with peace as opposed to with, uh, with anger or with uh, impatience or any of those things. We have, see now, we have been equipped to live this way of life together. We're exiles, but we are elected. And we are empowered with grace and peace that flows to us so that it might flow through us. We get to see this lived out this week. We gathered on Wednesday to celebrate the life of Linda Finlayson, who many of you knew, many of you were here at that celebration. It was amazing, just time of remembering her life, but giving praise to Jesus. And what a great example of grace and peace in the midst of a difficult world, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of even facing death, that someone like Linda lived a life of peace, even in the face of death. And the impact that that had on on family and on friends and on neighbors. And people gathered in this place who, uh, some who didn't know Jesus, and they knew Linda was a woman of faith, but were just blown away by that. And the testimony in the community of people who were impacted by that celebration, the, the God is advancing his kingdom even through that. And I got a call, I got a call from a, somebody who was just here uh, just someone who was here to experience that and say, hey, can you, I've got a situation at home, can you help me, pastor, with that? And this is somebody who otherwise wouldn't have reached out to me. And it's just the connections of life that God has given us out here 
that when we come together powerfully and people see that, just the fruit of that. So we are grace and peace flowing to us that they might flow through us. That is, that is who we are. We're exiled, but we're elected by God and equipped to be his people. Amen.